Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we were witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge Israel, to judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Father, we pray that as we look at this word, you would open our hearts to understand your text. You would help us to hide the truths of this text in our hearts and that you would help us to work out the truths of this text with our hands. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. This year, 2021, we've been doing what we call the story of God, an overview of Scripture. We've seen the importance of the Bible as a whole, not just individual stories, but how it all connects together. So what we've done from the beginning is looked all the way through the Old Testament, and now we're into the New Testament, and right now we're in the book of Acts. Jesus has come, he's performed his miracles, lived his life, he's died, he's been raised from the grave, he taught for 40 more days, was ascended into heaven, and this is where we are with the spread of God's new church. This story of God is important because it's essential that we as Christians understand that this book is one story from beginning to end. It's God's autobiography. He's the one who wrote it in and through the authors of every one of these books. This is the story of His glory. Throughout the year, we've been using four words to help us remember the overarching story of Scripture, and we've also been looking at this painting by David Arms to remember those four categories, creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. God made all things in the garden. Adam and Eve fell and sin entered the world. God promised right after sin entered the world that a Redeemer would come, and one day, we will walk with God again in the garden. This is that overarching story. This is what we've been talking about. And we've also been mentioning each and every week, the key fact of this story is that at the center of the story, the hero of this story is Jesus. So many times we're told by 
media and things like that, that we are the heroes. We are the ones uh, worth paying attention to. But the Bible tells a different story. Jesus is the hero. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. We've also been talking about how to read the Scripture well, remembering that context is king. So as we read each section of verses, we try to understand where it is in the book, what kind of book it is, what kind of text it is, and how we can read that well. So today we're going to look at Acts chapter 8 through chapter 12 and see from the early church how the gospel went from the city of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. But before we do that, I just want to talk a little bit about the idea of origin stories. Now, this may not have been a big deal 20 years ago, but now we hear this all over the place, particularly in movies. What is the origin story? How did this character come to be? Sometimes when we watch movies, we know that they were really successful in the main story, and so they're like, hey, let's keep riding the success. We'll do a prequel, or we'll do a beforehand, or an origin story of some of the main characters. But we don't just see it in movies. We also see it in things like comic books, and even in history. As we think about history, both the broader history and the biblical history, I thought about two characters who really it's important to understand where they came from so that you see how glorious it is where they ended up or how amazing it is where they ended up. Historically, one of the manliest presidents we ever had began with a debilitating asthma as a child, so much so that sometimes he could not sleep. And yet when he was in the White House, he would often jump into the river as it was freezing temperatures as a way to wake up in the morning. This is Theodore Roosevelt. As we think biblically, we think about one of the greatest heroes of the faith, if you will, according to Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham. And how before he became the father of all the Jews, he was an idol worshiper and not recognizing God at all. And so when we think about how Roosevelt used to have asthma, and then we look at his later life and see how he led the Rough Riders and was a physical um, embodiment of what it meant to be healthy. As we think about Abraham and how he began as an idol worshiper who had no desire or even understanding of who God was, and then became the father of the Jewish nation, it helps us to understand better how God can change us and grow us. Roosevelt's and Abraham's later deeds were made all the more significant when we understand where they came from. And so now we've begun to look at the church. We've begun to look at what we are as a body, but we've also begun to look at where the church started, the New Testament church started. So today we're going to be looking at that in chapters 8 through 12. We're going to look at it in three ways. We're going to look at the overview, we're going to look at key concepts, and then we're going to look at how that matters to us today. The overview, key concepts, and how that matters to us today. So let's start by looking at an overview of chapters 8 through 10. Now, context is king, so to give us some background, to remind us of where we are, we've got everything that happened in the Old Testament, all the ways that God blessed and loved his people, all the promises and covenants that he made. And we had the Old Testament people, the Jews, looking forward to this coming Messiah. 
This Messiah who was promised in Genesis 3.15, the first time sin entered the world, God said, one day, someone who will come to redeem you. The Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, looked at the life of Christ, all the things he did. And then we moved into the book of Acts. Turn back with me a few pages to the very beginning of Acts. When we covered this a few weeks ago, I said, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It was really significant for the book of Acts because Jesus is not only telling his disciples what to do, but he's giving us an overview of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so we looked at what it meant to be that early church in Jerusalem last week as we looked at Acts chapter 2. This week we're going to look at Acts chapters 8 through 12 and see how it spread from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And next week we're going to look at the rest of Acts, Paul's three missionary journeys, and see how that gospel continued to spread to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is important for a variety of reasons Covered a lot of them in the last sermon, the power of the Holy Spirit, the necessity of us to be witnesses, the way that the gospel spreads out. But I also want to emphasize, just to help us see once again, this is one story, Acts 1.8 is essentially a retelling, a re-engaging, if you will, of the creation mandate. Back in Genesis chapter 1, after God had created man in his own image, Male and female, he created them. In verse 28 of chapter 1 of Genesis, page 1, if you want to turn there, it says this, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air of the heavens and of every living thing that moves on the earth. This creation mandate is re-emphasized to Noah after the flood. God says once again, have uh, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over the earth. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we're seeing Christ say, remember, you're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. And now the way to do that is to show the world who Christ is. To show the world that God is the one who has control over all things. So Acts 1.8 is not only an outline, it's not only a beautiful way to remind us to spread God's word, but it's a restatement of the creation mandate. We, the church, are called to ministry. All right, so let's look at an overview of chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Obviously, if you remember, this is an overview series, so we're not going to be able to dig into the nitty-gritty of all these things But just to kind of give us a picture of how this gospel went from the city of Jerusalem and into Judea, Samaria, let's look at these sections. Turn back with me to chapter 8. You see here in the first three verses of chapter 8, we're introduced to this major figure, Saul. Now in chapter 7, there was the stoning uh, of Stephen, and now Saul, we're told, is the one who was majorly persecuting the church. This is a big deal because this actually is what gets the people out of Jerusalem. 
So they're real comfortable in Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem is the place that the church started. It'd be real nice just to stay there and hang out. But because of the persecution of Saul, look what Acts 1 says. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So how is Acts 1-8 going to be accomplished? How are we going to have this gospel go from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria? Through persecution. We see that Christians are now fleeing Jerusalem. They're now dispersed all across the regions around Jerusalem. And now we see how that gospel begins. Probably one of the more underrated figures in the early church is Philip. We don't think about Philip when we think about evangelism. We think about Paul and how great Paul's mission to the world was. But look at Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4. We see this character of Philip. Philip boldly proclaims the gospel, but he doesn't just proclaim it to people who are comfortable with it or people who are in Jerusalem. He goes first to the Samaritans. And remember, the Samaritans are not really good friends with the Jews. You remember the story of the good Samaritan that Jesus chose or or told to help explain about ministry and loving. The good Samaritan was one who should not have loved the Jews because they've been at war for over a thousand years. Samaritans are people who have a Jewish lineage, but they um, intermingle with Gentiles. And so they're not really accepted by the pure blood Jews, if you were. And so they've had this tension for a thousand years. And when Philip gets the gospel, instead of avoiding them, which many people would do, we saw in Jesus' life how he went through Samaria while many Jews would walk around it. Philip goes straight to them and he says, look, this is the gospel. Because many of the Samaritans still followed the Jewish laws. And so Philip takes the gospel first outside of Jerusalem to a place of tension. And he says, Jesus is the answer. As we move forward in chapter 8, we see Simon the magician, who was a powerful man in the area of Samaria, and how he cannot buy Jesus. As we read through the story of Simon, he's amazed. He's, He's able to do some things, but he's amazed at what Philip is able to do. And so he sells us things and says, hey, I want to buy this Holy Spirit. There's an important lesson for us here. You can't buy Jesus, which is both a comfort and and an an encouragement for us to give. It's a comfort because that means that Jesus is available to all socioeconomic and positional levels. It's also an encouragement because we still need to give to advance God's gospel. Excuse me. (coughs) Love allergy season. Simon the magician reminds us that we can't buy Jesus. In Ephesians, we studied last year, and it said, it's only through faith in Christ that we receive this gospel. And so as chapter 8 continues, we see Philip continuing his ministry, including to the Ethiopian eunuch. So chapter 8 begins with the believers being spread out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria. We begin to see some of these specific cases Philip going to Samaria, 
how you can't buy the gospel. Philip ministering to those on the road. Let's move forward to chapter 9. Once again, Saul takes the forefront of chapter 9, except here, instead of persecution, we see Saul's conversion. This would have been amazing. Saul was public enemy number one of all Christians because Saul was persecutor number one of all Christians. We can get just a taste of it as we read here when the believers are like, ah, that's Saul, get away, get away. Because they know that he's persecuting believers. And yet, God changes his heart. And he goes from their worst enemy to their greatest evangelist. We didn't. Let's just pause for a second here. What do you think about the one person in your life who has been the largest thorn in your side? Maybe you've lived a great life and it's just been somebody who annoyed you. Maybe you've had a hard time where there's been one person who has really made your life difficult. God can change their heart. That's hard. Because we hold on to these hard feelings. We have these reactions against these people who have hurt us, these people who have gone against us. And yet we see here with Saul, God can change their heart. This is why prayer is so important. Chapter 9 starts by showing us as believers and by showing that early church that this faith, this Jesus, this gospel is not a small thing. If the gospel was easy, you'd be able to purchase it and it would be really difficult for people like Saul to become a part of. But because the gospel is so profound and powerful, even Saul can change. Now we see as we move forward in chapter 9, Saul begins his ministry by going into the temples. We talked about this a little last week when we talked about Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. He goes to the place where the people know well the stories of the Old Testament, and he helps them to understand all of these promises, all of these covenants, all of these words about a Redeemer are fulfilled in Jesus. Saul begins his ministry in the temple, in the synagogues, because he knows that's the place where the people have the most background and would be able to best understand who Jesus is. As we move forward, even in the beginning, he was a strong evangelist, but he also, even in the beginning, needed protection. We see the story of how he was uh, lowered out of a city in a basket, how when he was being, or when he came to Jerusalem to meet the disciples, they didn't want to meet him. They were fearful, but he was introduced to them and they see the ministry that God has in his life. Look with me at Acts chapter 9, verse 31. This is right after uh, Saul has been introduced Right after, we see how the, the gospel is going forth. And in chapter 9, verse 31, it says this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This should be an encouragement. We talked about this last week in Acts chapter 2. 
In the beginning of, or at the end of Peter's sermon, we went from 120-ish believers in Jerusalem to over 3,000. And then we saw in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, where the church was going out and sharing the gospel and fellowshipping and breaking bread and praying together. We saw God added to their number day by day those who were being saved because they were being faithful to him. And now, despite even persecution, God, 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 is the one adding to their number because of their faithfulness and their love of him. And then we see uh, chapter 9 closes with a few miraculous healings, once again reminding us of the power of God. Then we move into chapter 10. We shift from Philip and Saul to Peter, one of the stout cornerstone disciples. And here in chapter 10, we get the name of the first Gentile convert to uh, what we would call today Christianity, and that is Cornelius. In verses 1 through 8, we see how he believes. And then we see Peter has this vision that's going to not only help Peter understand how the gospel changes all things, but it's also going to connect Peter with Cornelius. This vision of how God has overturned the old unclean, clean distinctions, the old ceremonial law through Jesus who fulfills the civil and ceremonial law. And now we have just being in faith. Look at verse 15 of chapter 10 with me. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. Peter was reminded more than once that God has broken down these old divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles. The ceremonial laws, the clean and unclean distinctions are being overturned and fellowship with others outside of the Jewish nation is being encouraged, is possible, and is supposed to be how they minister. And then we read chapter 10, verses 34 through 43, and we see Peter preaching to Gentiles. This is a big deal. This is a big shift. Obviously, going from Old Testament Judaism to believing in Jesus is a big shift, but even more so, letting Gentiles in is an even bigger shift. Because the Jews knew the Old Testament, knew that a Redeemer was coming, knew that someone was coming in order to save them, but they thought in terms of them and them alone. And now that we're seeing Gentiles being included as well, This blows the doors open on all that changes their minds. You remember when we did uh, the book of Ephesians last year, we talked about how the Jews and the Gentiles needed to be united. Paul spends a lot of time in that book talking about how, listen, if you have faith in God, it doesn't matter if you're of the tribe of whatever or you're a Gentile, you are a part of the church and you should work together. And this is where we see that beginning. This is where we see that idea shaping. Now look with me at verses 44 through 48. I'm going to read these because after Peter preaches to the Gentiles, something amazing happens. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on 
the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, not only has the gospel been preached to the Gentiles, but to erase any doubt in the Jews' mind that this is what God had planned, the Holy Spirit descends on those who are listening. Those who haven't followed the ceremonial laws. Those who haven't been clean and taught how to be clean from birth. Those who up until just a few days ago probably lived what we would call a pagan life. They heard the message of the gospel. Their hearts were moved and the Holy Spirit descended on them. They didn't have to jump through any hoops. They didn't go through any of the rites that Jews had to go through like circumcision and the clean and the unclean and the festivals. God came on them anyway. What an amazing thing this is. They are fully accepted by God without having to do any of the ceremonial law or obedience. i got to be honest, this is huge for us. If you've read through any of the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament, you will also be very glad that you don't have to do those anymore. In my devotional time, in the last many months, I've been going through Leviticus And a lot of these laws to us, to our ears, we're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. The laws are there to show us that God is holy. But even recognizing that the laws are there to show us that God is holy, I don't want to do them. They're hard. It's really hard to do some of these things. Not only that, but it means that we're constantly working out our salvation in a way to earn our salvation in our own minds. But here we see that God has descended on these Gentiles who had no circumcision, had no ceremonial law training, and he brought himself to them. This is great news for us because maybe some of you have a Jewish background, but I don't. And this gives me comfort because I can come to Christ without being a descendant of Abraham. This is a big big deal. Verses 44 through 48 bring us great comfort. All right, let's look at chapter 11. In chapter 11, Peter reports to the church because they would not have been expecting this. Sure, Jews in Jerusalem, we understand that they can come to faith because they're still being faithful and going to temple and still of the 12 families. Samaritans, eh, that's Philip, you kind of went out on a ledge there, but at least they understand the Old Testament and You know, some of them are still practicing, even though we don't consider them fully Jews. But Gentiles? we got to draw the line somewhere, guys. But Peter comes in and says, no, no, we don't. The Holy Spirit descended on these Gentiles, and through their faith, they are our brothers and sisters. And the beautiful thing about this is that we see, as this gospel continues to spread throughout Judea and Samaria, churches begin to be planted. In the latter half of chapter 10, we see a church begin in Antioch, and the focus of the church in Antioch is reaching Gentiles. 
this group that has long been disregarded by the Jewish nation, are now being reached with the truth of the gospel. Verse 23 and 24 talk about this church in Antioch. Barnabas, when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them uh, all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So in 23, we see that the church at Antioch is doing what it's supposed to be doing. And then in verse 24, it says, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. What an amazing thing this is. The Word of God is being preached faithfully, and God's church is exploding. God's church is exploding. Finally, let's move to chapter 12, because chapter 12 is the end of this Jerusalem, uh, Judea area, and then chapter 13, we begin to see to the ends of the earth. Chapter 12 kind of has three acts, if you will. The first act is James The brother of John is killed and Peter is imprisoned. It begins to feel like, uh, okay, now the local authority is going to assert themselves and show them that God isn't real. Peter's in jail. But then we see this incredible jailbreak in verses 6 through 19 of Peter. An angel shows up to Peter. He essentially just walks right out of jail. And he's able to go to the house. And what are the people in the house doing on behalf of Peter? They're praying. They're praying that God would do something amazing. They're praying for Peter. And then the third act is, in the beginning we see Herod killing James and imprisoning Peter. In the middle we see God redeeming and pulling Peter out of prison through the prayers of the people. And in the end we see who the true power is. And it is God. We see Herod die. Look at verse 23. In verses 20 through 22, Herod is coming before the people. And in verse 23, we see this. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Why did an angel of the Lord strike him down? Because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last We're reminded that God is the one in control. Why was Herod killed? Because he did not give God his glory. Immediately after this, look at verse 24, what happens? But the word of God increased and multiplied. If we were to put uh, in terms of a battle, God and the rulers. Chapter 12 shows us pretty clearly who wins. Sure, the rulers may have gotten that first punch off and killing John and imprisoning Peter, but who wins the fight? God wins the fight. God is the one in control. God is the one in power. Verses 23 and 24 are written right next to each other so that we are forced to compare Herod, who did not give God the glory, and the church, who did give God the glory. One dies and one thrives. All right, now that we've looked at an overview, let's just look at some of the key concepts that we should pull out of chapters 8 through 12, things that we see broadly throughout these sections. Number one, we saw that persecution spreads the gospel. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really want to pray for persecution. And yet, historically speaking, where we've seen persecution, that is where the church has thrived the most. Because faith is built there. And in this case, in this early church case, it forced the believers out of Jerusalem and into the regions around. The people were now scattered about. And so, instead of losing heart because they've been displaced out of their homes, instead of saying, well, if God really loved me, he would give me what I wanted and I would be able to remain in Jerusalem where I have my home and my family and all those things. Instead of losing heart because of that persecution, God's people remain faithful. They not only remain faithful, but they continue to bring this word of God to the people that are all around them. They say, I'm displaced. I am now moved to another place. All right, great. Let me tell you in this new place about Jesus and why I was willing to leave my things for him. The next thing we see throughout verses 8 through 12 is that evangelism is filled with both change and changelessness. And what I mean by this is as the periods and ages and histories move on, there will be change in the way that we evangelize. In chapters 8 through 12, we see that that evangelism happens in person, and we see that it happens through the spreading of God's word. But as we've moved through history, we have new tools and new opportunities and new ways to help people understand the gospel. We now have videos that we can show that help to emphasize the strengths of the gospel. We have images and graphics that can travel around the world. We have programs that can teach and train us how to equip ourselves to share the gospel. And so while the methods may have changed in sharing the gospel, the gospel is also changeless in that the truths that Philip told the Samaritans, the truths that Saul told those in the synagogues, the truths that Peter told Cornelius and the Gentiles are the same truths that save us today. We are sinners who cannot save ourselves. Though we try and make effort to bridge the gap between us and God, there's no way we can do that because even in our best actions, they're filled with sin because our heart is sinful. And God loves us and wants us to be a part of his family, but he's also just. And so our sin must be dealt with. So if it's up to us to deal with our sin, we can't do it. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. God sent Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve, to rise again from the grave, defeating death, paying for our sins. And it's through faith in Christ and what he has done on our behalf that the Samaritans, the early Jews, Cornelius and the Gentiles, and you and your family and your neighbors and your co-workers and your classmates your friends and acquaintances can become children of God. The truth of the gospel has not changed, even though we are in a totally different place, a totally different history, a totally different setting. God's truth has remained the same. Another important concept that we see in this section, a concept that brings us comfort, is that God is the one who changes hearts. So we look at Paul, who was called Saul. 
he was voraciously persecuting the church, believing that he was doing the work of God, blindly and aggressively seeking to stomp it out. I don't think any of us could have convinced him he was wrong. I don't think anybody in his time could have convinced him he was wrong. But God changed his heart. The reason this is a comfort to us is because it means that when we do share with our neighbors, our bosses, our co-workers, our friends, our fellow students, wherever we're at, where we live, work, study, and play, it's not up to us, it's not up to our words or our intonation or our kindness or our gifts or anything that we do. It's up to God to change their hearts. So we can share knowing that it's not our fault whether they do or don't believe. And we can share freely and gladly spreading the seeds of the gospel as far and as wide as we can. It's important for us to remember that God changes hearts so that we don't feel guilty or we don't feel like it's up to us. It is up to God. He took the church's greatest early enemy and made it the church's greatest early evangelist. He can take the greatest opponent of you and your faith and turn that into your greatest encouragement. So as you share your faith with people, remember you're being obedient. But you can't change their hearts. Only God can do that. And let that free you as you share the gospel. Next, it's important for us to remember that God's promise to Abram has come. As we have continued to talk about how this is one story from beginning to end, we go all the way back to the beginning. We look at Genesis 1 and see how Acts 1 is a continuation of that. We look at the covenants, the promises that God has made, and see that Abraham was promised a land, a people, and a blessing. This blessing comes in and through his descendants, specifically Jesus, so that all may come to the Lord. When we see Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and we see the gospel being preached and lives being changed, we're reminded that God is a promise-keeping God. And this blessing is that now Gentiles can call themselves sons of and daughters of the Lord because of Christ and what he has done. Every text is a part of his story. It's not disconnected. This is a great reminder of God's covenant. And finally, we see in chapter 12, prayer is powerful. The early church prayed and it worked. We see them praying in Acts 2, 42 through 47 as that church life is established. Prayer was a key aspect of it. We see them praying here for the immediate need of Peter and how their prayers are answered. Prayer matters to God and it is powerful. All right, now that we've looked at an overview and the key concepts of this section, let's close out by looking at how this applies to us today. I look at Acts 8 through 12, and I say, Grace Point is at this place meeting at this time on this day because of the faithfulness of this early church. 
rather than being discouraged by the persecution, as they were dispersed into the lands around them, they brought the good news of the gospel with them, and it has continued. We can call ourselves sons and daughters of the king because of the faithful work of this early church. But just because their work was faithful and brought us to where we are today doesn't mean the story's over. Because until Jesus comes back, we still have the job, the joy, the opportunity of continuing in the same work that the church did before. So how do we apply chapters 8 through 12 to our lives? I think there are two ways, uh, share and prayer. First, we need to share. Philip shared his faith with a culture that had been disowned by his ancestors unashamedly, unabashedly, he shared with people who normally he wouldn't even affiliate with. But it wasn't just Philip. The Jews and the Sumerians didn't think well of each other. And then Paul moved in after Paul's conversion and shared not only to the synagogues, but to all the nations. And then Peter was given this vision by God. And Peter shared to Cornelius and all the Gentiles. Philip, Paul, Peter, obeyed God's commands, and shared the gospel. As we look at the ways that they were obedient, we have to ask ourselves, where are we being obedient? Where are we sharing our faith? Who are you praying for that does not know Jesus? Who are you talking to that does not know Jesus? Who are you living before that does not know Jesus? That through your life, but more importantly, through the words of Scripture, the Holy Spirit may work in their lives and call them to himself. Last week I quoted Spurgeon. He said, "If you're, uh, you are either a missionary or an imposter. That's, whew, that's, that's hard language, isn't it? Like all of us are like, oh, I don't like that. And it's because we're convicted. We know we love Jesus, but when we don't work out our love for Jesus through sharing with others, how are we loving him in return? We're keeping it to ourselves. This is the greatest gift we have. So my encouragement is to you, no matter what you have done in the past, no matter whether today you walk in and feel like an imposter, God will forgive you and empower you to go forth and share this gospel. How are you showing Jesus to other people? How are you preaching Jesus to other people? How are you looking for opportunities to share? But it's not just sharing. It's also prayer. We've already talked about it in Acts 2, 42-47. It emphasized that the early church prayed together multiple times. We've seen it here. We will continue to see it throughout the letters to the early church. They pray together regularly. In fact, Paul challenges us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. He says, be joyful always. Pray continuously. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. We are called to pray continuously. How much time do you spend every day in prayer? When do you pray? Do you, do you pray when something's broken and you can't fix it, or when you can't find something, or maybe at meals? 
Or do you pray continuously? Having a conversation with God, any opportunity you get, when a prayer request uh, is made known to you, you instantly pray for those people right then and there. We are called to pray continuously. That means we, we pray in order to praise God. We pray in order to confess our sins. We pray in order to thank God. We pray in order to grow. We pray for other people. Let me give you a trick. When you're really frustrated with somebody, spend a lot of time in prayer for them. The longer you spend in prayer for them, probably the less frustrated you're going to get. Unless you're like, no, I'm going to show him. I'm going to be angry at them even after I pray for them. Listen, as you pray for people, your heart is softened towards them. You realize that maybe what they're doing is because of situations you don't understand. It helps you to love them well. It helps you to relate to them well. It helps you to engage with them well. When people frustrate you, pray for them. And obviously, pray for other prayer requests that are made known. Pray for the church. Pray for Grace Point. God is doing incredible things here. Pray that he would continue to grow us and to draw us towards him. In summation, pray for everything. It's pretty easy. What do I pray for? Anything and everything. God's listening. He loves you. And he loves to hear from you. He's like a friend. You don't really call somebody a friend who you only call when you need to borrow their truck. Because every time they pick up the phone, they're like, you need the truck, don't you? Uh, Yeah, how'd you know? Because you only call when you need the truck. God's the same way. He wants to talk to you all the time. Not just when you need his truck. Not just when you need his help. He wants you to be engaged with him. We at Grace Point are a young church. And just like Roosevelt and Abram grew, we too will continue to grow. And by looking at the word and taking time to share and for prayer, God can use us in this church for his glory. So as you go out from here and think about this text, both today and throughout the rest of the week, ask yourselves, how can I share and where do I need to pray more? How can I share and where do I need to pray more? Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful and grateful for the picture that you give us of us being united to you, of us being your church because of the work of the early apostles in Acts 8 through 12. Father, we thank you that we can connect ourselves to this and that we can say that we are a result of this. And Father, we pray that you would continue to grow us, grow us in our ability to share your truths with others and grow us in our prayer that we might glorify you that we might honor you and that there would be many in the future who would say thanks to the ministry of god through grace point i know god better convict each one of us where we need to share and help us to grow in prayer it's in jesus precious name we pray amen thanks again for joining us we pray that you are drawn closer to god and encouraged to be in the word If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.